Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. It's amazing. It's been about 15 or 16 years since I've been here last time, but again, a complete uh, delight, real joy for my soul. And so as we come this morning to take up the topic of the Christian's gospel obligation concerning the sure, glorious return of Jesus Christ, I invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, picking up at verse 11. Romans 13, at verse 11, here as Paul now turns our attention from the subject of ethics to eschatology or the end times, he writes the following and says, Romans 13, at verse 11, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Brethren, let's once again pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning in that exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have gathered a people here in this place to praise and worship your name. And we're thankful, O oh God, that all of this is because of your salvific mercies which you have wrought to us in your Son. Father, we bless your name. We thank you, O oh God, that you have been merciful to the likes of us. We're thankful, Lord, that you are no respecter of persons. And we thank you, Lord, that we have been incorporated into the sheepfold of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We bless you, O God, because we know that salvation is not of the one that willeth, nor of the one who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Thank you, Lord, for showing so much mercy to the likes of us. Thank you, Lord, for saving our never-dying souls. Father, as we come this morning again, we're asking for fresh help from on high. God, we're asking that you won't leave us to ourselves, but that you'll rend the heavens and speak for your servants listen. Oh God, do us good, we pray. Might your word run and have free course in our midst. Sanctify your people and save the lost. We ask you. In that wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It was John MacArthur who rightly said that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a key and central doctrine in the Christian faith. He says, it's not minor, it's not unimportant, rather it's crucial. And this is because our Lord's return consummates the history of the world, the history of redemption, and it is the fulfillment of all of God's pledges and promises, his covenants, and his threats and warnings. 
Well, dear brothers and sisters here this morning, I believe that John MacArthur is right in all that he says here. In truth, his words are spot on. And yet, in addition to them, I would also say that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is crucial. And this is because it is to be a real wake-up call for all of us who are believers to spiritual alertness and moral purity since our Lord could return at any time. Now, brethren, think about those words with me just for a moment. I mean, if you and I knew that Jesus was going to return this afternoon, I bet that you and I would live a bit differently, right? I mean, if you knew that his sudden, personal, and visible and body return was this day, I bet, without knowing all of you, that each and every one of you would have your lives in order. I bet that would be the case for each and every one of you in this place. And why? Well, it's because having been saved by Jesus' free grace, you want to please your Savior, right? Yes, you would not want to be like the evil servant who said in his heart in the parable that my master delays his coming. No, rather, you would want to be like the wise virgins who took oil in their vessels with their lamps so that when the bridegroom returned, they were ready to meet him. Well, it is this matter then of Jesus' sure return and our living as we are supposed to live as God's people, which the Apostle Paul connects in our passage for today. Here again, as he turns our attention away from ethics to eschatology, he tells us three vital things which are to be essential in our lives as the people of God in view of Jesus' sure return, and they are, firstly, that we wake up, secondly, that we clean up, and then thirdly, that we suit up. You want the outline for today? Here we go. Wake up, clean up, and suit up. Dear brethren, these are to be our watchwords for our day if we are not going to be ashamed when our Lord returns. And so, as we come then for this morning to these vital matters for our spiritual good, I trust, I ask you please to note with me in your Bibles, in Verse 11 of this chapter, the matter of you and I who are Christians waking up here. As the apostle is motivating us and the original readers to be all that God would have them to be in view of the sure return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes saying, look at the words again, and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. Now the opening words here in verse 11 of this chapter where Paul says, and do this, seem to be connecting us to what Paul was speaking of in the previous section in this book when he said that as Christians we are to have love toward all people. Pastor Nichols mentioned it in the opening hour here. Paul says, for example, in verse 8 and verse 10 of this chapter, look at the says, owe no one anything except, look at the words, except to love 
one another. Why? For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he says in verse 10, that love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love, agape, is the fulfillment of the law. That is the fulfillment of the law, the second table of the law, with reference to others. Well then, our verse morning and do this again connecting to what he previously wrote in the former passage and do this that is live in christian love toward all people and then he says that we are to do this look at the words in verse 11 knowing live this way there's ethics live this way knowing or understanding the time And what time is Paul speaking of here? Well, clearly, he's speaking about the appointed time. Or we might say that decisive moment in history when our Lord Jesus Christ will return to this world. We read it earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Simply put, brethren, Paul here is speaking about that time. When to quote Jesus' words again in the passage that Pastor Nickel read in Matthew's Gospel, he will return. In another passage, actually, in Matthew, he says these things. He will return in the clouds. How will he do it? In the glory of his Father and with his angels. And now Matthew 25. And when he does that, our Lord says that he will judge the world in righteousness. And he will separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep being received into everlasting glory, and the goats being cast off into eternal perdition. Well, in view of this great end time, eschatological reality, in view of it, which the Bible speaks of in many places, Paul says next in our verse to the believers at Rome, and to us by way of extension, look at the words there in your Bibles, he writes saying, that now, Not tomorrow, not next week, but he says now, right now, in view of this, it's high time for us to awake out of sleep. Now when Paul here is speaking to these Christians, it's high time for us to awake out of sleep. What sleep is he referring to? Well, obviously he's referring to any spiritual slumber that you and I might be in. You see, here Paul is speaking metaphorically. And his point is plain, and it is that instead of us being spiritually drowsy as God's people, imagining, for example, that Christ's return is so far off that who knows if it'll come or when it will ever come, if this might even happen, as some say. Paul says, rather than thinking that it's so far off that you don't need to live as you are to live, or again, as some say that it will never happen. Paul says it's high time to awake out of such delusion. It's high time to wake up. He says it's time that you and I who are Christians rid ourselves of all such false notions. Then he puts forth the reason for this when he says, next in the words in our passage, look at it there, he says, for. Why do we need to do this? For now, our salvation is nearer or we might say closer than when we first believed. Why do we need to wake up from our spiritual slumber, our spiritual stupor? Paul says, because now, right now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, when Paul speaks here about our salvation being 
nearer, what is he speaking of? Well, clearly, he's speaking of that final aspect of our salvation, which is known as our glorification. You see, church, if we study our Bibles closely, uh, we know quite plainly that the Bible teaches that our salvation comes to us in three ways. What are those three ways? Well, firstly, our salvation comes to us as that which is past. It comes to us as that which is present. And then it comes to us as that which is still future. And so if you're taking notes, the Bible uh, presents our salvation uh, firstly as that which is past. You say, oh, what passage, pastor? Well, Romans 5 and verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1, Paul says, having been justified, aorist tense verb, having been justified, we have peace. We have a reine. We have peace with God. What's the point? The point is, the very moment you and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for life and salvation, we were legally justified. I spoke about it this morning in my life almost 30 years ago. The very moment by God's grace when he granted me repentance towards him and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There I was in New York City the moment I believed on Christ. To the saving of the soul, I was legally justified before the tribunal of tribunals. I was forgiven of all my sins before God, and I was credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. A past action. Having believed, you have been justified. Secondly, again, if you're taking notes, our Bible speak to us of salvation as that which is present. You say, what passage? Here's one. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, where Paul says that the message of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness, but to us who are being saved. Present action. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so the point is, for us who have been saved, by God's grace, he continues to renew our hearts and minds through the ongoing process, which is known as sanctification. Well, thirdly then, again, if you're taking notes, our Bible speaks about our salvation as that which is still future. Still future. What passage? Romans 5 and verse 9. For there Paul says, having been justified by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved. Shall be saved in the future. We shall be saved from wrath through Christ. And so simply stated, this means that the work of salvation which God began in our lives in justification and that work which he continues in our lives through the process of sanctification will one day be completed in glorification, praise be to God. That's what Paul is speaking of. This, brethren, is the fact of the matter. Consequently, Paul could say, for example, in Romans 8 and verse 30, that all those whom God predestined to eternal life, he also called. And those whom he called, what did he do? These he also justified. And those whom God justified, these he also glorifies. Well, again, Follow with me. It is this final aspect of our salvation which the Apostle Paul is highlighting to us here in Romans 13 and verse 11. Simply put, the point is, when Jesus returns, this last aspect of our salvation will be completed. 
And at that time, according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, our Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body so that it will be conformed to his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Well, brethren, in view of such an event as this, I say, what a day it's going to be. What a day it's going to be. I say, brethren, it will be the very best day in our lives when that which is corruptible puts on incorruption and when that which is mortal puts on immortality. What a day it's going to be. Thus it should cause us all to say with the Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. When corruption will put on in in, in corruption. We'll hear that again as uh, Paul puts forth this great end time reality. He says that uh, you and I who are Christians are to wake out of our spiritual slumber in view of it. He says that you and I are to be watchful. Why? Well, to quote Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, it's because our redemption draws nigh. Now, it's also important for you and I to note in these words that when Paul speaks about our final salvation as being nearer, or as I said, closer than when we first believe, that Paul here is highlighting to us a key truth which he has been setting forth throughout this epistle, which is that salvation is by faith alone nearer than when we first believed. The point is, Paul does not say that our salvation is nearer than when we were first baptized. No. Nor does he say that our salvation is nearer than when we first joined the church or partook of the sacraments or attempted to keep the Ten Commandments. No, rather he says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He says it's nearer than when we first trusted in Christ alone for life and salvation. And this is because, according to the word of God, faith is the singular means whereby salvation is granted to an individual. Nearer than when we first believe. Faith, not works. Not our good deeds, no, but faith alone, in Christ alone, which is a complete trust and a reliance upon Jesus' finished work at Calvary, whereby in love he took our sins upon himself and was punished in our place and made a full and a final and a free atonement for everyone who believes in him alone for salvation. Nearer than when we first put our trust in him. And so, having called us in verse 11 to wake up, wake up out of your spiritual slumber, knowing that Jesus' return is near, Paul goes on secondly in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter to tell us to clean up, to clean up. Look at the words again. He says uh, first in 12a that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Now, when Paul speaks here about the night, 
Uh, he's speaking uh, metaphorically about this present evil age which has just about run its course. Uh, that's what he means by this language. The term night is used this way. For example, if you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, Paul says to the believers there in verse 5, we are, quote, not of the night. There it is. Nor of darkness, therefore let us not sleep. It's almost like our passage before us today. As others do. But let us watch. Paul says, let us be sober. Let us be spiritually sober. That's the point. Why? For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Well, again, as Paul here is putting this doctrine of eschatology before the minds of the Roman Christians and us as well, he says that the night is far spent. He says the day of evil is almost over. And that the day is at hand. What day again is that? Well, it's the day of Jesus' sure and glorious return. Well, because this is so, he says to us next in 12b. Look at the language there in your Bibles. He writes saying, therefore. You've got to love those therefore in Scripture. Very important. Or consequently. In view of this, Paul says, consequently, let us who are Christians cast off or lay aside the works of darkness. He says, and let us put on the armor of light. And so what is Paul saying to us here? Well, he's saying to us who are believers that firstly, we are to negatively rid ourselves of every single thing in our lives that we know is not pleasing to Jesus. And then secondly, positively, he says that we are to put on the armor of light, or we might say of the covering of light, which metaphorically speaks about the covering, or we might say the protective gear of a godly Christian life. Now, dear friends here this morning, in view of these words by the Apostle, I must pause to ask each and every one of you who's listening to my voice, either in this place or online, are you feeling what Paul is saying to us in view of this passage? Are you getting it? You see, what he's saying here is that since the Lord's return is... Do, it's near. Behold, he comes quickly. You and I who name the name of the Lord need to be sure that we are not involved in anything which is displeasing to him. And that's the point. You see, so for Paul, his eschatology, the end time return of Christ, is connected to his ethics. Matter of fact, his eschatology is fueling his ethics. Jesus is going to return. You don't know when. Live godly, Christian. Cast us off everything that is displeasing to Christ, even now. That's what he's saying. He, he's combining the two. And it makes me think of Whitfield. What did Whitfield say? Whitfield said that when Jesus returns, I want to be found doing one of two things. Either preaching or praying. How about you here today? What do you want to be found doing? What do you want him to find you doing? Gossiping? Watching pornography, lying, stealing, fornicating. What do you want Jesus to find you doing, dear Christian? I hope it's living godly for him. This is what Paul's driving at in our passage. He's driving at this very thing. Thus again, if there's any sin that you're engaged in or I'm engaged in, we need to repent of it quickly. You think about whatever sin it is that you're engaging in, I say, friend, repent of it even now. 
Thus we see, listen carefully, that the sure return of Christ is a powerful motive to our holiness. It's a powerful impetus to this very end. It's a tremendous motive to our living as God would have us to live. Thus the Apostle John can say, 1 John 3, that everyone who has this hope of Jesus' return, what does he do? What does she do? John says, he or she purifies himself even as he himself is pure. That's what he does. That's what she does. That's what you and I must do. This is what Peter says also, 2 Peter 3. He says that in view of Jesus' sure return, we should live, quote, in holy conduct and in all godliness. Well, just in case, we need some clarity as to what we are to clean up in our lives as Christians. Paul says next in verse 13 of this chapter, note the words there in your Bibles, he writes saying, let us walk. Now, the word walk in Scripture talks about conducting ourselves in a certain way. Let us conduct ourselves. How, Paul, properly, or we might say becomingly, as in the day. And then he says, not in revelry and drunkenness, or we might say in wild, sinful parting, with excessive drinking so that we become intoxicated, as the ungodly do all around us all the time. Next he says, not in lewdness or sexual immorality and lust or unbridled sensuality. And then he says, and not in strife or, or bickering and envy or jealousy. You know, not just those, those outward uh, grosser sins, right? Of fornication and lust and all of those things. He says, now, look at Let's not be found doing any of these things, including, he says, bickering and envy, right? He's really trying to get not just that external deeds, but, but that which is internal, that which is of the heart. Now, in uh, this verse here, Paul puts forth three not statements. You see it, not, 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 three not statements. And in reading those verses here, we might wonder, listen carefully, were these really sins, listen carefully, were these really sins which the Christians at Rome were habitually involved in? Habitually involved in. He's speaking to them. Were these sins which dominated their lives, which characterized their lives as Christians? These, by the way, these particular sins were sins which were dominant in the Roman culture in which they lived. Was this the case with them? Well, friends, I don't think this is the case. I don't think that... These were sins which were characterizing these Christians at Rome. Thus, this is why in describing the Roman believers in chapter 6 of this book, Paul says, but God be thanked. Thank God, he says, though you were slaves of sin, nonetheless you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. So I don't believe these were sins which habitually characterize these believers. A pastor Nichols is preaching in Romans chapter 1. Paul addresses the church there to the saints at Rome, to the hagios, the holy ones. They were holy ones before God. Now, of course, having said all of this, the truth of the matter is, brethren, that all of us who are believers can still be tempted to any one of these things and sadly, at times, 
we can fall into them. Right? We can fall into these sins. Thus, Paul's words here are very applicable for each and every one of us. This is the sad truth of the matter. However, having said this, blessed be God. For us who are true Christians, God has promised in his word to preserve you and I in a life of gospel holiness all of our days. Blessed be God that even though we may fall into these grievous sins, as Paul lists them here, and continue in them for a while due to the temptations of Satan in the world and the strength of remaining corruption in us, nevertheless, we who are true Christians will renew our repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end, to quote our London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now to be sure, dear ones, this is good news. This is real good news. Because again, while... We must put on the armor of light and we must, Romans 8, mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit of God. Blessed be God. That as we persevere, God preserves us to the end. And all for whom Christ died, he shall not lose any of them. This is glorious news which should encourage us knowing, to quote Paul again, in a verse which very nicely ties to what we're considering now, God, having begun a good work in us, will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Until our Lord returns, He will keep all of His saints in the hollow of His hand. Glory be to His name. And so, having told us, in our passage, that we are to wake up, Jesus returns quickly, and to clean up. Notice with me now, thirdly, in verse 14, that Paul says, finally, that we are to suit up. We are to suit up. Look at his words again in your Bibles. He writes saying, but, the strong antithesis here in verse 14, but put on the Lord. Or we might say the sovereign master Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now these words here by the apostle stand in sharp contrast to the three groupings of sin which he just spoke of in the previous verse. Actually, listen carefully, Romans 14 highlights to us, 13 and verse 14, highlights to us this verse highlights to us how it is that you and I can have victory in our lives over the sins that he just spoke of in the previous words. How do we have victory over those sins which so easily entangle us? Answer, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, in commanding us here to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not referring, listen carefully, he's not referring to you and us, you and I rather, receiving the flawless, imputed righteousness of Christ, which we received in justification, the very moment we believed on 
Jesus Christ alone for life and salvation. When he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not speaking about us doing this. And I say this because this putting on of Jesus in this sense is a one-time act. Never to be repeated, as we're told in Romans 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 10. He's not talking about us putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ in the legal sense. And so, if not this, what is Paul speaking of? Well, simply stated, he's speaking about what is to happen daily in our lives through the process of sanctification. You see, here when Paul speaks about us putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you and I, who are Christians, can live holy lives in view of Jesus' second coming, he's telling us metaphorically that as believers, we are to be sure that we are consciously wearing Jesus wherever we go. You say, where did I get that from? I got it from Pastor Nichols. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, we don't put him on in the justification sense. That was put on us by God. One time and one time only, but in the sanctification sense. You and I who are Christians need to be sure that we are wearing Jesus wherever we go so that, and this is me, we are regularly modeling his Godward life of a holy heart, a holy mind, and a submissive will to God the Father. So I took what he said and I added to it. Baptists are good at doing that. Just look at our confession of faith. We saw what the divines said in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we just took it and added to it and made it better, might I add. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I have victory over those former sins or any sin in my life? I need to be sure, you need to be sure, that you are regularly wearing Jesus Christ wherever you go so that you are modeling his holy heart and his holy mind and that you have a submissive will to God the Father. Simply stated, brethren, to put on Christ means that we are to be Christ, men and women, from head to toe. That's what it means. It means that we are to imitate our Savior, walking even as he himself walked. Thus the Apostle John could say in 1 John chapter 2, that he who abides in Christ ought himself to walk just as he walked. Well, as we do this, no doubt, by God's grace, what Paul says in the last part of the verse will be true of us when he writes in 14b, saying, we are to make no provision, or the Greek word better translated, no forethought, no planning for the flesh. Put on Christ, and as we do that, we will not plan or schedule, as it were, a time to sin. Right? And every sin we commit, I believe it's premeditated in that sense. I'm going to do this thing. It's wicked. No, put on Christ. Walk with Christ. Walk in Him. Take Him, as it were, wherever you go, metaphorically speaking. Therefore, do not schedule time to sin. Give no planning or forethought to it. None of this for the flesh or our remaining sin within and this, Paul says, so that, 
we do not fulfill its lust. Now, many of you, I would imagine, are aware, if you are familiar with church history, that verses uh, 13 and 14 of this chapter were powerfully used by God to bring great conviction of sin and conversion to the man who's commonly known as St. Augustine or St. Augustine. You who's heard the testimony of this passage being used in St. Augustine's life. Some are shaking their heads. They know about it. Yes. Well, listen, before St. Augustine was converted, he was anything but a saint. He was a wicked man. Godless man. Matter of fact, many of the sins in our verse and view characterized Augustine. Ah, brethren, but one day God got hold of him. One day, as I mentioned in my testimony, God was drawing him to himself. Of course, answering the prayers of his beloved mom. Praying for Augustine for years as he's going out into the world. Here he is, he's having those wrestlings in his soul. God is convicting him. He knows something's not right in his life. He's there actually at a friend's home. And they're in the garden. You've heard the story. And he's just talking about, oh, my sin, this, that, and the other. And I know stuff's not right. And I got my mother. She's always telling me about Jesus. He's going back and forth, back and forth. As he's talking to his buddy there at his house in his garden, uh, he hears next door a little girl singing this ditty. Take up and read, take up and read. A total legge, total legge. And he's thinking, huh, I've never heard that ditty before. Take up and read, take up and read. So he listens to that voice. And lo and behold, next to him was a Bible. And so he opens his Bible. And what passage does it fall on? Oh, Romans 13, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and in envy, but Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. He he reads this verse and instantaneously he's converted. Instantaneously. Listen to him himself. He says, quote, no further would I read, nor had I any need to. For instantly at the end of the sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished. God used our passage in view to mightily lay hold of this man to make him a Christian, to make him a true saint, and to use him very powerfully in the kingdom of God. And so here then, brethren, is where we end the exposition of our passage for today concerning the Christian's gospel obligation in view of the glorious shore return of Christ. This is what Paul is pressing to us in this passage. So having considered it, what applications can you and I take for ourselves who are the people of God? To you who are Christians, what does our passage call you to do? Well, there are three things. And the first is look up. The second is get up. And the third is pray up. Three things. Number one, look up. 
which is to say, brethren, look up and be encouraged because your Jesus is returning for you. Look up and be encouraged. Brethren, you and I are living in difficult days. There are troubles inside and outside. There are hardships that we are facing economically and socially and politically. These are troublous days. Just as Jesus spoke of. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. Paul says in Romans 14, in Acts 14 rather, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. These days are upon us. You step outside this place, hardships on many different levels. But brethren, you and I need to look up. Because our redemption draws nigh. We need to remember Jesus' words in John 14, 1 and following. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. Why? Because he is God. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, dear Christian. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself. To what end? That where I am, there you may be also. That is encouraging. Again, it should cause us in our hearts to say with John, Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Are you longing for his return, Christian? I say you should. I say that the whole New Testament has this press upon us. Behold, I come quickly, says Jesus. He returns soon. It's sooner now than it was for them, brethren. The Lord is coming. When He comes, He will close out this age and He will usher in the age to come wherein righteousness will dwell forevermore. In that day, brethren, dear struggling saint here this day, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Why? For the things of this life would have passed away. God says, behold, I make all things new. Are you waiting and longing for all things to become new? Oh, my dear brother, my dear sister, I say, firstly, look up and be encouraged. But secondly, in view of this grand eschatological reality, you need to get up. You say, what do you mean, pastor? I say, get up and do the work of evangelism. Since according to our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 24 and verse 14, he says this gospel must be preached in all the world and then the end shall come. And so listen, brothers and sisters, you and I have a work to do. We have a work to do. The Great Commission is to be a commission for us to fulfill. It's called the Great Commission. May it never be the Great Omission for us. The Great Commission. We have a work to do. Are you doing that work? Went out with the Nichols yesterday. Got to go to various towns, etc. Wonderful time. There's great need in this area. We're down on Main Street in Catskill. Great need, brethren. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you knocked on some doors, preached open air, invited people here for an evangelistic sermon? The work of the church is not just calling a pastor. Thank God for it. 
Now we need to get out. We need to get up and tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a work to be done. And you know, I find that the longer I'm in the pastorate, next year, 15 years, God willing, the harder it is for me to get out because I've got something I've got to do on Sunday. It's called preach the gospel. But I do make it a point that wherever I go, when I go with my bride to go out to eat to do that, that we're leaving gospel tracks. Speaking about Jesus as we're able to do it, opening my mouth as I can for Christ. But for the people of God, you guys have got opportunities that I wish I could have. When God ordained that so-and-so would come into your shop or you would meet so-and-so, view them as People who have never dying souls. Souls which will spend eternity in one of two places. We read about it earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Friend, I tell you, seek to open your mouth for Jesus. God has put you in unique places. Older folks, younger folks. You can get into places where I can't get into, Pastor Nichols can't get in. See yourself as an agent of Christ. To share the gospel. Plant a seed. There's not a person here in this room who did not have someone speak to them about Jesus. Somebody was courageous enough to go up to you and say, oh, can I tell you about a Bible study we have? Or can I share with you a verse from the Bible? They were courageous enough. God uses human instrumentality. As Spurgeon called it, the machinery of the gospel. He uses instruments. Romans 10, how shall they hear unless they are sent? He uses people, his people, to share the gospel. And so share the gospel as you're able to do it. Do what you can. Spurgeon once said, if we know what we've been saved from, then we know what we've been saved for. Saved from what? Hell and the wrath of God. Been saved for what? For telling others about Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. I've asked myself this question numerous times over the last couple years preaching through the book of Romans. And you might have preached on it last week or it's coming up soon. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. Are you? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I love the gospel. Awesome. But when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, it means that he was not ashamed of it, thus he was sharing it. I'm going to preach at Rome. Why? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So he said, I'm not ashamed of it. I love it. I believe it. I've been saved by it. Great. Now do what we are supposed to do with the gospel. What is it? Share it. Preach it. Proclaim it. Live it. Tell others about it. Jesus, this gospel shall be preached to the ends of the earth. Then, Jesus says, the end will come. Thirdly, brethren, and finally for us who are Christians, not only are we to look up, not only are we to get up and do the work of evangelism, but we are to pray up. That is to say, pray up to God for help that we might live as God would have have us to live. We need help. We need strength. 
it's so easy to be irritated in this current climate in which we live on so many levels, political and otherwise. Are you kidding me is what we're saying. What a joke. They're mandating what I've got to do, what? Ay, ay, ay. That's a New York expression. It's not just Pastor Nichols. That's, a, that's what we all say from New York. Ay, ay, ay. What is going on here? Every time you, you, you check the news, it's like, oh, oh, oh. And we can get a stink attitude, brethren. But you know what? The Bible does not say that the fruit of the Spirit is a stink attitude. I don't know what version of the Bible you read, but that's not it. Probably NIV doesn't even say that. The fruit of the Spirit is love on the top of the list. Joy, peace, patience, love. Does love characterize me in this wicked and perverse generation? Or am I just as sour as the unsafe people around me? We ought to be different in the office, at school, wherever it is. Man, why are you not caught up with everybody else? Why are you not complaining like everyone else is? Because I serve a God who rules over all and who's ordained all of this. And Jesus is on his throne and he's working all things together for my good. Here's why I'm not complaining like the rest. I have not thrown off the gospel. I have not thrown off my understanding of the fact that all things are under Jesus' governance. Brethren, wake up. Wake up. Remember what's going on. Nothing is outside of the realm of Jesus' supremacy. All things are working after his plan. Even the virus and everything else, it's all under his governance. And again, to quote our confession of faith, he's working it for the good of the church. So may we live a life that glorifies God and that we would look to him every day. Oh God, help me not to be complaining. Help me not to be Irritable, oh God, I feel that way. But Lord, help me to exude the love of Christ. Help me to exude love and joy and peace. What a draw card that is. Just to see someone happy in this day. If you do, you say, you must know Jesus. Jesus should make us happy. Understanding the end times. And again, he's not waiting to be king. He's king already. He's ruling everything. We could rest in him. We can be different from those around us. I close then with a word to any non-Christians here this day. Some new faces. I don't know all of your conditions, spiritually speaking. You're not saved. What do I mean when I say you're not saved? I mean you're not born again. That's what I mean. A saved person is someone who's been born again born from above. They're new creations in Christ Jesus. You're here this day, you're not saved. What can I say to you in light of our passage for today? Well, it's not look up. It's not get up and it's not pray up. You say, what is it? It's simple. It's fess up. It's own up to the fact. Listen. Own up to the fact that if Jesus returned at 12 o'clock today, it's now 12.20, you would be in hell for 20 minutes already. Fess up to the fact that you're not ready to meet Jesus because you're not born again. 
You'd be roasting in hell for 20 minutes already if he came back 20 minutes ago, my friend. Own up to the fact you need to be saved. You need to be converted. You need to be born again. Own up to the fact that you're on the broad road that leads to destruction, just as Jesus says. Own up to it. You're not a good person. You're a wicked person, just like Jesus says. You were born bad. You are bad. Oh, you say, well, I'm not as bad as others. Okay, maybe you're not as bad as others. But unless you're perfect, you're not getting into heaven. Huh. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Uh Uh-huh, you're not perfect. But let me tell you something. The perfect God of heaven and earth will only have perfect people in his presence. So you say, okay, so how do I become perfect if I'm not perfect? Well, you go to Christ. You turn from your sins. And when you believe upon him, he not only forgives your sins, but God the Father credits you with his perfect life. So that you stand before God in that day with Jesus' virtue and righteousness covering all of your sins. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin, from shame, from guilt, from fear. My friend, you need Christ. And the beautiful news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He loves sinners. He he didn't come for the righteous, that is, the self-righteous. Maybe like some of you here this day, I'm a pretty good person. No, he came for sinners. Sinners. Sinners like me, again, 22 years outside of the kingdom of God and just living to the flesh and all the rest. He came for those sinners. Sinners like maybe some of you raised in the church. Oh, you weren't externally as bad as I was, maybe. But internally, you've got those same sins that Paul speaks of in verse 13 of this chapter. Strife and envy, pride and lust. They're in your heart. You need to be saved just as I needed to be saved. And the glorious news of the gospel is that there's no sinner who's too bad for Jesus. Not one. Not one. He says, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And let me just say, my dear non-Christian friend, it's hard being a non-Christian. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And I know what it's like for 22 years to live as a non-Christian. And it is horrible. Spiritually speaking, it is a burden. But you come to Christ like Pilgrim did. And you look to him as your substitute who in love gave himself as the just one for the unjust ones that he might bring us to God. You see the love of God and that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you. And you say, oh God, forgive me for all of my sins. Wash me in Jesus. I put all my hope in your accomplished work at Calvary. And the moment you believe upon him, 
God Almighty forgives you of all of your sins, credits you with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, gives you the Holy Spirit, and makes you a brand new person. Who would not want to know Jesus? Who would not know Him? Oh, my non-Christian friend, know the Lord. Know the Lord. God made you to know Him. And you know Him through His Son. Let's pray.